Hello, this is your host, Paul Harvey at Life, Passion and Business. I realise I put this at the end of the programme most of the time. And I also realise I don't often listen to the end of podcasts. So I thought I'd tell you here before we get started. So the first thing is this podcast is not supported in any way. We have no sponsorship. So if you would like to support us, do check out the Buy Me A Coffee link on this podcast app. And you also find it at the website. Okay, before I take you to the podcast, I want to give you a little bit of a reminder about the power of focus and accountability. This is the one tool that will really get you towards the goals you are seeking, towards the path you want to take. So listen to the end to find out more or check out the link in the show notes. Anyway, let's get you back to the podcast. My name is Paul Harvey, and you are listening to Life, Passion and Business, a podcast born out of my desire to find greater meaning in life at the time when I thought there was none. Since that day, I have spoken to hundreds of people. And what I have discovered is that our story is everything. Because what we do, feel or experience is based on the stories that we tell ourselves. It's time to explore what it means to live a good life. How do we make this experience better? And more importantly, how do we lead the world to a better place? You know, back back in my younger childhood days where I could take a soldering iron and kind of stick things together and see if it works. And if it didn't, it blew up in my face. And if it did, it's like, wow, I made it work. Startup is very much like that. It's you play with these things. You, uh, <laughs> I was doing all these different things to make stuff work. And that was it just kind of, yeah, that experimentation, that curiosity, it was there again. But now I was getting paid a lot of money to do this. Innovation is the seed of possibility. It is that inspiration that takes us forward to a future that is yet to be defined. I'm excited by innovation and possibility. And at the same time, I have lived long enough to see the unintended consequences of our best inventions. This conversation is about motivation and wonder and how one gets lost when the passion gets distorted by money and the search for status. It's an amazing story of an innovator. Scott Stoneham is a Brit born and raised in West London, now living in Reading. Technology was always his jam from an very early age. He was inspired by his uncle, who was an electrician. He tinkered and played with things to see how they worked. As a teenager, his uncle gave him a bank of switches and he set about automating the gadgets in his room. He was not the classic geek, being a bit of a rebel, and was inspired by movies like Back to the Future, which led him to learn to skateboard, The Karate Kid, which led to martial arts, and finally The Terminator, which led to a university degree in cybernetics. Upon leaving university, there were no cybernetic industries to join, so Scott went into software engineering and later a job at Vodafone. At the time, they were the one of the leading mobile phone operators in the UK. This is a fascinating exploration of innovation and development of mobile applications at a time when there was no need for them. They were creating the business use and the market for the technology they had. Scott helped bring to life innovations that we take for granted today, things like mobile internet to smartphone navigation. Over the next 25 years, he took roles in senior technology and marketing roles for multinationals, including Vodafone, Qualcomm, and some of the edgy technology startups in the UK, Europe, and the US. Our conversation explores how motivation can move. First, it was all about innovation, and then it moved to money and status. And like every journey, there are dark times. One realization was that climate change is real. 
Today, Scott focuses his energy on driving positive impacts for people, nature and the planet. He's driven by the UN Sustainable Development Goals and channels his work through two ventures. Leading Accelerator for Impact Startups and helping companies understand and address their digital carbon footprints. Scott is an innovator, an advisor, a speaker and author of Exploring Digital Carbon Footprint Report and a contributor to Dope University and the founder of the Digital Carbon Online. Let's join the conversation with Scott Stonham. Scott, where did it begin? <laughs> yeah, I am. Um, I was born kind of North London in Harrow. Yeah, so that's that's where it started, <laughs> in, in in a sense. And uh, my family are kind of still dotted around that area mostly. Um, I came to where I am now, uh, Reading, in '93, um, because uh, I wanted to study cybernetics. Um, and <clears throat> Reading was the only university that offered a, a full course on cybernetics. That's out the west of London, isn't it? Where Reading? Yeah, 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 yeah. And it's it's fairly well. <clears throat> known because it's right in the heart of what they call you know the uh the uh, uh the silicon valley of the uk down the m4 corridor hmm. I, I always have a bit of a tough time with that term because i don't believe it to be honest um, <laughs> i've lived here long enough to not believe it uh, but it's how it's how politics sells that idea to other countries to come and invest here that's what it's about yeah yeah and i mean you do have big tech down here i mean that's why i'm still here i ended up working for vodafone um and then you have all of the big telco down this kind of corridor you have microsoft's uk headquarters and uh, who else we got here dell used to be here so there's a lot of tech here so i can understand why but <clears throat> Yeah, having also worked in Silicon Valley, I can tell you this is nothing like Silicon Valley, <laughs> but apart from tech, um, which is that. But I guess rolling it back a bit um, uh, to those child kind of leading to this, you know, where did it all come from? Um, those childhood memories I have of um, playing with technology um, and fiddling with things until I got electrocuted kind of thing. Um, that's kind of le- where part of the thing i remember my uncle was an electrician and he always we always used to kind of be playing around with gadgets and bits of tech and i remember having this steel panel of switches there was like probably 24 36 36 different switches and i just wired all these switches to different things around my room i had an oscilloscope that was plugged that i pulled out of a skip that was plugged into my stacks of hi-fi so I could have like a waveform going on that. And then I had an um, an old electric car aerial that would go out my window so I could get better FM reception. And I'd just be switching on all of these things and kind of uh, I used to play a lot with that. I remember getting zapped by a TV because I took the back off, unplugged it. But, you know, these old cathode ray tubes, they store, what, 50, 70,000 volts for quite a while? Oh, they do. They do, yes. <laughs> scrape myself off the wall and i'm like i shouldn't do that again um so so yeah kind of there's some of those early memories and uh i was very much into skateboarding but yeah so i was a bit of a bit of a rebel like that i used to play rugby a lot i played a bit for my county um i used to do well in athletics and i remember getting into trouble once at school because we had a we had a day where you could it was all about hobbies so i brought my skateboard in and I was skateboarding around the camp, around the school. And that was kind of okay. They tolerated it. But when I was skating on the chemistry lab benches and jumping off of them, yeah. I do remember I got into trouble. With that so yeah. it, was, uh, it was kind of after that when I was thinking about what do I do next? 
And it was the movie Terminator that gave me that direction to go to cybernetics. There was a movie, um, Back to the Future, that got me interested in skateboarding. Yeah. Um, what's the, uh, the Karate Kid got me interested in martial arts. And Terminator got me interested in cybernetics. So oh, right. okay. there's a movie theme here. Definitely. And my mum said to me something that stuck with me ever since. She, when she, we were talking about this and she was driving me to all of these interviews at all the different universities. She said, I think you're going to either create something that destroys humanity or saves it. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So, well, so um, you obviously went to university and what did you study in the end? So I did study cybernetics and control engineering. All right. Okay. Um, back, which... to those switches. back to those switches again then. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the course cybernetics and it was cybernetics and control engineering and they were linked very tightly but they were different um and this is the day of these you know, arm robots isn't it really? you're talking about isn't it really and uh, controlling them with the industrial robots oh yeah mm. the scary things they are under the umbrella of cybernetics we we did things that you might not think of when we talk about robots we we studied audio engineering you know i've got a big I've got a speaker behind here with a base tube a base vent in it mm. that is a cybernetic principle the mass of air moves backwards and forwards to create the sound that you hear and it's mm. all controlled in that box we did planetary engineering the co- the uh, uh the topic of gaia you know how the planet is one evolving feedback system we did business management and all of this stuff it's all feedback mm. But on top of that, we were also doing artificial intelligence, virtual reality, augmented reality, um, electric vehicles, wireless charging. What an amazing um, course. I know. Absolutely. I couldn't. I mean, if, I can't understand why it's not there now. And if you go to Legoland today um, in Windsor in the UK, they've got these little Lego cars that are rolling around and they're rolling around a track. They're using optical sensors to figure out where they are and they <laughs> stop on on wireless um, charging devices. My lab partners built that as their um, final final year project back in 96. And it's just, I took the kids there the other day. It's like, wow, Alex did this. <laughs> um, so but obviously went and sold it afterwards. <laughs> yeah, well, the university did. Um, no, I think that part was sponsored by them. And my ro- my my project was to build a, a small robot that moved on, on three wheels and using very rudimentary um, artificial intelligence technologies um it learned first of all how to move so it just randomly threw the wheels around until it figured out it was moving in a sensible kind of manner um and then it also learned how to hunt with some really basic parameters um and it was again this was in 96 so the point of going all the way back here is when we start looking at talking about that slaughterbots video um it's building on topics yeah that you know, I was I was playing with in '96. So that I think the, the, the slaughterbot videos becomes more relevant as the miniaturization happens, as 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 the as all the technology comes together, mm-hmm, power supplies, mm-hmm. miniaturization, and and uh, radio control, that sort of stuff. Yeah, it's amazing. And <laughs> so obviously, you you left university with something sounding quite useful by the sounds of it. Did industry go? Yes, lovely. Let's have you. No. Um... <laughs> <laughs> not, not how I imagined it. Anyway. No, that's how most people leave university. And go. Yeah, I, I touched on so many different pieces, um, and also whilst at university, I um, ran um, a a mini kind of micro business within the student union, providing all the lighting and sound equipment and booking DJs and acts for you know um, all the parties and kind of um, 
things that happened around university that was real hard graph for nowadays money that you wouldn't wouldn't buy you a bag of crisps it was brilliant it was so exciting because we were plugging all these things together operating all the lights doing all the sound meeting superstar djs it was amazing yeah yeah, but i remember one summer we um and my shift was 96 hours long <laughs> and it and I was climbing up four meter trussing, kind of locking these things together. I'm like, I haven't slept in days. Here I am <laughs> dealing with 320 volts up a four meter. I mean, this is dangerous. But um, you know, there's the point of going back all that to all that way again is that you know, I learned a lot of very diverse things in in cybernetics. I learned some very hard stuff in control engineering and com- and then I learned some real kind of business kind of hard graft stuff in the kind of extracurricular things. Mm. Um, so I went out to the world thinking, this is amazing. You know, I can really do something cool with cybernetics. Um, and there was nothing around. Um, but what there was, was there was a lot of opportunity to to leverage this thing that I happened to learn as I was, yeah, as a tool, as an enabler for me to learn, to do all the other stuff. And that was software engineering. Mm-hmm. So this kind of, tool that i had to learn because i couldn't do anything without it ended up being that thing that i ended up creating or starting my career with anyway so i went into software jobs um and the first one was a credit card processing company um maybe we won't go into them but yeah it lasted a year until myself and nearly the whole whole development team walked out pretty much overnight um they, they had good they had a good um, personnel style then we, <laughs> we worked so, people <laughs> yeah we we worked so hard on this massive initiative which made the company a lot of money uh the bosses got um the bosses turned up kind of in their new jags and some other fancy cars and we had this big ceremony where they called us all together say you know thank you so much for all of your hard work we really want to recognize this and they wheeled out you know like a tea trolley with a big mound covered in something and they whipped off the tablecloth off the top of it and they're like so please accept these donuts as our appreciation <laughs> wow a donut mm-hmm. so nice so yeah there was a team of seven i think of us and only one of them was left within two weeks so that taught me something too they didn't read the room did they <laughs> <laughs> no no not at all yeah, but that was the first job, and then I left and went to Vodafone for pretty much six years, I think. Well, they must have done it right then, because they kept you for six years. What were you doing in Vodafone? Lots of things, um, but it started off with software, um, and the software was to help understand how to plan their network mm. and ma- maintain their network. So, you know, the mobile network has tens of thousands of these mobile masts dotted around all over the country, and when you're trying to work out your coverage and where you need to put more masks and where there's problems, you need to really understand where these base stations are. So you can, you can figure out where the radio waves are going or where you want to send the uh, engineer. But at that time, they didn't really have a very coherent way of doing that. Um, And uh, my job was to try and pull the data in and create a software or, or, I would have wondered if whether whether usage would be important that whether whether you because you would know which which masks are getting the most usage and where the where the where the majority is. You kind of like, you know, if if one were, were looking to use one's resources well, you wouldn't bother putting too much effort in places where there are not many people. But your your point is is absolutely right. You know, this putting a base station in costs tens of thousands of pounds yeah. um, just to build it. 
So it is a business. They have to make a return on investment and they only get a return on investment if there's enough people to use it. But this is where we get to in the UK and, and other countries where you get the worst service in the most uh, remote areas from the people who need the best service, really, because there's no other connectivity. Yes. It's because there's only you know a handful of people there and they're never going to make the money on it. I mean, originally, Scotland was quite lucky in the respect, well, say Scotland, this area and Scotland was quite lucky in terms of that um, the government mm-hmm. forced their hand. They didn't force their hand. They gave them lots of money and said, put masks here. We need yeah. them. <laughs> we'll pay yeah. for it. Yeah, it's uh, you could really see that that early investment into Scotland when we were doing national studies. You could see, you know, actually, it's a lot better there in rural places than it is mm. In, in places in UK, in um, England and Wales. Scotland's used to it, I think, because they've always had these issues with remote areas. So they've always done things in remote areas to, to, to mm. obviously, to, well, part of the problem is if they don't, those areas depopulate mm. and the situation gets worse. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, there's all sorts of interesting social dynamics that you can look there as well about. Mm. Um, so look, you're in Vodafone um, and you left after six years. What happened then? Uh, I was I was lucky enough to be in some really exciting things in Vodafone, um, and I had I had lots of different bosses. One of the, one of the reasons that I left was because um, I seemed to be changing boss and direction every three months. At the end, it was just unbelievable. But in that time, I had some really visionary managers, and one one guy, a chap <laughs> called Charlie, amazing guy. I was frustrated with an experience I had with the trains. This was you know. Um, 99 i guess 98 99 and i said wouldn't it be amazing if we actually knew when the train was turning up instead of just going by these paper timetables and i said i think mobile technology can have a role in understanding when your train's going to turn up and helping you plan for that and charlie just said interesting go and make it happen (laughs) i'm like what yeah, it's 20 year old. He goes, yeah, go and speak to the railway companies. And I remember going to speak with Great Western. Um, and I remember having this conversation and how we were going to use SMS to let people let systems know when mm. trains were stations and stuff. And he's like, that was amazing. I didn't, you know, it kind of led to something that we have now where we have those uh, mm. signs and all of that stuff. But just sparking that off and being a 20 year old with the, um, with the kind of, kick from your manager say just go play with it make it happen it's like wow it's great then i got involved in um this group called vodafone multimedia that was uh all about um test being more startup like in a large organization so we got to do all sorts of really fascinating things things like um things that we take for granted now um first of all we we work my team was working on the um, the mobile internet back then, WAP. I mean, that was great to be involved in that. And then we did things like, how do you, if you're working on your desktop computer, how do you save it in a way that later on you can get it on your phone? Um, and mm. kind of creating these things to, you know, sharing across. Um, so you were instrumental in some of these early early bits of tech that started making like turning, pho- turning phones into computers. I like to think I was instrumental, but I was involved. Well, you were involved. I mean, you were yeah. part of the team on that, weren't you? Because it was obviously that wasn't done by one person or one company. No, Lot, no. Everyone, everyone moves the, moved the post along a bit, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. And then the next thing was location-based services. So, you know, under, going back to that knowledge of where these base stations are. Yes. No, trying to know which one you're connected to and then triangulating that with others. You could get a, an approximate idea of where you were. And 
I was involved in some of the standards work on that as well. Um, and uh, yeah, and that was really interesting. And that's that's what led to my departure from Vodafone in the end, because I did a lot of that work. Um, and then we had this kind of three month cycle thing and I ended up getting put on notice of um, redundancy Christmas Eve, which was mm. like really nice. Only on Boxing Day to get a uh, a phone call saying, "Actually, it's all fine." <laughs> Thanks for that. Um, and then and then I had a knock on the door from uh, a large Californian company saying, "Look, we've seen what you've been doing on 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 location services. We would love you to come and work for us." And they gave me an offer that I couldn't really say no to. Silicon so, Valley. Yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. So, um, so you moved to then, America. Well, I didn't move to America, but I spent a lot of time in America. Um, at one point, I was there every other week. Um, which, your carbon footprint must be awful. Now, that's a, yeah, we'll get to that. <laughs> but that. I mean, that's at the time where, you know, your gold frequent flyer cards were a badge of honor. Mm. Um, and now yeah, I see people flashing these gold carbon, these gold cards around and I'm, 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 I'm <laughs> gross now. <laughs> task. Um, but uh, yeah, I spent a lot of time there and my role there was to, um, it was working with a, a company called Qualcomm. They do all of the mobile chipsets, all a lot of the mobile chipsets in your phone. Hmm. And they just made a, an acquisition of another company that was working on GPS technology. Um, and they were kind of bringing that together. But my role was to work in, in Europe, the first European employee. And very quickly, my role became influencing Europe as a whole with the idea that having GPS in your phone would be useful. What year was this? 2003. So had GPS been been reached at that point? Because I know that for a long time, the US kept it very, very blurry for most people. And then only, yeah. sharp, only sharpened it up when, you know, for military applications. It happened kind of in that in that period of time. Um, I'm trying to remember the name of the flag now, but it's a long time ago, 20 years ago. Mm. It happened in that time. But the, the technology that this company was acquired for is what they call assisted GPS, mm -hmm. where you use the GPS signals, but you also use land-based markers as well, mobile masks to yeah. kind of triangulate, yeah. make things faster, <clears throat> quicker, more accurate. But my role was to kind of influence the idea that this would be useful. It was amazing. I was working with very senior levels of the mobile operators. I got to work at the, or present at the National Physics Laboratory, did some work with various knowledge transfer partnerships, bit with European Space Agency, did a lot with kind of we didn't have app developers then that didn't exist but software developers on these ideas organizations businesses enterprises and just was kind of my role was to come up with ideas of how it could be used um and get people thinking about oh well that's exciting to the point where the mobile operators in their huge standards that they they used to write for mobile phones because they they used to be completely in control of what mobile phone was coming to market they're not really anymore but in these standards, if they said, we want GPS, then Qualcomm wins. Um, so it's what they call a market maker strategy, where mm. you make the market for a technology that you have. Um, and it was amazing, absolutely amazing. I loved that. Whenever we talked about location, the first pushback I had was always, oh, well, we can't use maps on mobile phones. You know, the screens aren't good enough. And my challenge was always, and I remember doing this with Telefonica in Madrid, 
okay we're gonna have we're gonna have this we're gonna have this meeting now but i don't want us to talk about maps at all imagine maps don't exist how can we use an understanding of location to create something exciting or something useful something that creates you know a business and it really got people thinking in a different way and we started coming up with uh, how do you improve customer service for business customers if you know where they are and you know where your engineers are how do you improve things mm. like railways and um, shipping logistics and all of this stuff so you know that was great and then all of the phones caught up and we now we can't live without it now we can't live without mobile phones we can't live without location um we don't even realize how much you use location and that was actually another big thing I wanted to. Well, of course, it is amazing because you, yeah, you you want you want this, and it gives you the thing that's closest. Yeah, and I I used to say as well at that time, location needs to be kind of integrated into these things that we don't know it's there, but we do know when it's not there. Mm. Suddenly, things feel a bit awkward. It's like, why is this not doing what I expect it to be doing? Yes, so you'll, that, no, you'll yeah. notice that. I mean, I, I'll notice that one if you do a VPN on a on a on a on a, on a browser, because mm -hmm, mm -hmm. suddenly you start getting uh, um, some very weird searched things which are nowhere near you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I mean, it has its nefarious side as well. And we did a lot of work in the standards to try and um, try and uh, create something that would put in place frameworks for privacy, because out of everything, knowing people's location is one of the strange one of the most dangerous things and i mean yeah i did this workshop for another company where i demonstrated that with enough data um over time enough location data with other kind of you know amalgamated with other data sources you could identify individuals by their behavior and their movements rather than you know anything else um well i mean there was a while back i mean probably not that long ago, definitely before GDPR, where you could use MailChimp as in, you know, the email service provider. Mm -hmm. If you went into the data of MailChimp, you could actually get a map of where the person and what time they opened your email and where they were down to the street location. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that's not not available anymore. <laughs> you know, yeah, I hope not. <laughs> um we we had this uh, and i won't mention the name um of the company um but i was i was at a board meeting where i was presenting the very early stages of location based technology and um i was definitely the youngest in the room um and i we had only just stopped using ohps i remember that cuz there was one in the corner mm -hmm. we were using this really hot low res um projector and I put up a um, uh, an image, um, and I said, uh, "You know, this is where my phone is right now." And you can see a dot on the screen, and it was roughly where we were. And uh, one of the gentlemen around the table says, "Oh, wow! So if I give you a mobile phone number, you can tell me where where that person is." I'm like, "Absolutely!" So he gave me a mobile phone number. It, came, it took quite a while to come up on the screen, and he kind of took his glasses off and he stared at the screen. He's like mumbled something that I won't mention now and stormed out the room. <laughs> His wife was somewhere she shouldn't be. <laughs> yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so, I mean, at that moment, we were like, oh, privacy is going to be a bit of a problem, isn't it? Um, <laughs> so, yeah, that was that was uh, instrumental in a lot of our thinking, that kind of thing. 
So what was motivating you and driving you all this time? What was the passion on all this work? Because you obviously really enjoyed it and you were obviously getting a lot out of it. Yeah, and it's, it's, it's a great question because right at that point in my career, things changed. Um, and then and then only recently they changed again. So up until that point, it was that curiosity and that ability to do amazing things. Mm. Um, you know, from, from that time in my bedroom where I could flick a switch and the aerial would go out of my bedroom window, you know, that ability to do something here and have an impact over there was, you know, that curiosity. So, wow, I can do that, you know. Um, and even, you know, through the credit card company through Vodafone through Qualcomm that idea of tinkering and creating something new that had an impact that was bigger and kind of more yeah it was it was just you know with the location stuff I had this personal kind of motivation when my mum came to visit me at, um, at, at university she always got lost and it was always she would I'd always get a call um oh no not then didn't have really calls back then at university but when she got here, she goes, I went wrong at the red cow. And she would always go wrong at the red cow. So when it was location, it's like, well, you know what? At least I can solve my mum's problem. <laughs> and I thought if I can solve her problem, I can solve you know millions of problems as well. So it's about curiosity to have an impact, to have kind of a positive outcome. Um, but then, you know, success, young success. I was flying all over the world, having these kind of really influential conversations and doing lots of really great stuff. I left Qualcomm went to another company that was that was not so much fun um and and then I left that company and I went I started kind of moving from big companies to startups and mm -hmm. I was young with a lot of international big tech company experience so startups were were snapping at me they were like yeah you got to come and help us you got to be VP of this or whatever and I was doing all of these really cool things and I ended up chasing job titles and money so mm -hmm. i went from this curiosity very naive curiosity to trying to have some kind of big impact to being in a position where all of that led me to a place where i could pretty much demand my salary and my terms um and it was really exciting um but all exciting things have a like that they all have a consequence um and you know it led it led to some very difficult times in my life um i was working in the south of france for a few years with a startup and i'd leave my home at 3 a.m on a monday catch a flight down there spend a couple of days down there and then come back at 9 p.m on a thursday mm. um and that impacted family life that impacted relationships and uh, friendships and mm. all sorts of things so yeah, that that was just taking chunks out of me um but i didn't stop because by that point i need i needed the money i wanted the kind of fame and the notoriety and the job titles and all of that so <clears throat> that whole kind of startup uh startup piece where you're there's an addiction startup. to the energy as well there's a peculiar energy around startup which oh you're I right i think is yeah. very addictive because it's like yeah we can do this we can do this and there's something there's something about that that really latched on to again the bed you know playing with switches <clears throat> you know, um it it felt like you know back back in my younger childhood days where i could take a soldering iron and kind of stick things together and see if it works and if it didn't it blew up in my face and if it did it's like wow i made it work 
startup is very much like that it's you play with these things you, you have to do everything in a small team you're not you know i was vp of marketing but i wasn't just vp of marketing uh, i was doing all these different things to make stuff work and that was it, it just kind of yeah that experimentation that curiosity it was there again but now i was getting paid a lot of money to do this and had great privileges um but you know, then it kind of led to these more and more startups. Um, I mean, I haven't done tens of them, but I have been through the round of um, kind of joining a startup, trying to get it to grow, it not growing for one reason or another, or it does grow, uh, it does succeed. And the whole kind of that startup cycle, I've been through that a few times. Um, and that's taking me from the startup world back into enterprise, from the enterprise world back into startup. So that's been great. But I guess there was a point when um, I think it's around 2016, 2017, where that last cycle of kind of startup being acquired and then suddenly being in a company, a huge company, where I realized, yeah, I had had this notion in my mind that I didn't really want, I didn't really want to be involved in sales, and I definitely didn't want to run a sales sales team. Um, and I didn't want to work for large organizations. Um, there I was working in a large organization, being head of sales and running a sales team. And it's like, <laughs> what am I doing? Why am I here? <laughs> and I remember it was in this in this house, I was standing in the kitchen, and it was a gray, rainy November, and I was washing up something in a sink, and it was really depressing. It was a really depressing day, and I felt really depressed and down. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Um, I don't have to. And I remember making that decision. It's like, well, this is not a, it's not a penance. It's not a punishment. It's not, yeah, I'm very lucky to be in this position. So I made a decision that this was an opportunity. Um, and it was an opportunity to learn more about how this kind of business works, this industry, because it was a new industry for me. And also to learn from a personal side how to do sales team management and how to lead a team. So I kind of made that decision, kind of pulled myself up. I'm like, okay, we're going to go and make this happen. And I pushed on with that for another few years. Um, but it wasn't right. I mean, even, even that just didn't sit right for me. Um, there was something still missing. Um, and it took another couple of years for me to kind of really latch on to that and think, and I had this aha moment where I realized this is what I'm going to do. Um, and that was at a swimming pool in Slovakia, actually. Um, in some of my presentations, I even have a picture of the swimming pool and a little arrow pointing to exactly where I was lying in the sunshine. And I had this aha moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I said to my wife, who was looking after our small kids in the pool, um, trying to stop them from drowning, um, I said, hey, I've got an idea. I know what I, I know what I'm gonna do. And I just remember her saying, that's lovely, but come and help me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So so yeah, that's that's kind of yeah, we talked about what was driving me. And it was that, yeah, initially it was that curiosity, that technology kind of innovation. And then Well, what you'd done, you'd built a life, hadn't you? And and the money was part of that life you'd built. And so any any now change to that means a change it means it doesn't affect just affect you, it affects everybody. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, again, in my younger years, <clears throat> it didn't seem to matter how much money 
I was generating was never enough. It would just just disappear. Um, My conversation with Scott was long and fascinating. And so to, to for the sake of probity, I am split it into two for you. So this part two will be out in the next 24 hours. And that was Life, Passion and Business with Paul Harvey and my guest, Scott Stonham. If you'd like to catch up with Scott, you can find him on LinkedIn. You can find his website, digitalcarbon.online, the Impact Accelerator at ia.asquired.uk and his other website is wellthatsinteresting.tech and all those links will be available at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com Okay, as I mentioned at the beginning, now is the time to discover how to find some more focus in your life and get things done. Okay, so we're all looking to move forward. We all want to find some measure of success in the world. And if you've heard the podcast, you know I have a view of success, but that's another conversation. The point is, however you look at this, we want to get things done. You might want to get a project over the line. You might have a really big goal that you're looking to to move, to move forward on. And the problem is, whenever we start these projects, whenever we do anything like this, there's always some resistance. There's always something that gets in the way. And that can be a multitude of things. Um, But the key to this is how do we retain focus and stay with the project and push it over the line? And that's where focus coaching can help. Now, it's a a process that I discovered some 15 years ago during my coach training. And it's something sometimes called focus coaching, turbo coaching, speed coaching. And it's a really simple process where we, we define what it is you're trying to achieve. And we look at the resistance that you're experiencing in that achievement, come up with some strategies to solve that resistance, commit to setting a date, and I hold your feet to the fire to make sure that you do that. So there's a commitment, there's an accountability process, and that's it. That's basically how it works. You get it done. And I can tell you, it is so powerful when you start working in this way, particularly when you work with someone who supports you in the process of doing it. And one thing to remember, you know, success is never guaranteed, but the struggle always is. And that's what this coaching is designed to do. It's designed to get you through the struggle towards the success you're looking for. So do check out the uh, link in on this podcast or at the website lifepassionandbusiness.com. You will find a video of me again explaining this process. But if you go below the video, there's a booking link where we'll have a discussion about your project and how we could get you sorted. As always, if you have enjoyed this podcast, if you found anything here of any use, please share it with a friend because that's how people like yourself find good podcasts. If you can, give us a review. Give us a five-star review. I have lots of five stars. Why not? I think I'm worth it. When you support a podcast in that way, you have no idea how effective it is, both in terms of supporting us on the platform, but it also makes us feel good. Yes, it makes me feel good, and I like to feel good. As always, thank you for your time and attention. I will catch you next time.